Once upon a time in a small town strip mall. Good morning. Ah, yes. Good morning, shopkeeper. And how are you on this fine day? Well, I'm doing pretty good, thank you. Excellent. That's excellent. Can I help you find anything? Well, yes, I'm hoping you can. I was on my way home from work just now, and I'd noticed that my wife had texted me. Well, not being one to text and drive, I immediately found a place in which I could safely park my car. Well, sure. Once I had the engine off, the key removed from the ignition, and the parking brake engaged, I tossed aside my driving gloves and gave the text a really good read. Can't be too careful out there, you know. Of course. Upon reading the aforementioned text, I looked up and found myself gazing with serendipitous glee at the sign above your shop. Franks and Beans, yes? Well, that's right. I'm Virgil Bean. I run the shop with my partner, Abner Franks. Excellent, Mr. Bean. That's excellent. Please call me Virgil. Why, I believe I will. I'm Charles, by the way. Charles Bland, but you can call me Chuck. Okay, Chuck, how can I help you? Now that's a tricky question, Virgil. Tricky indeed. I think before we can answer the how, we need to get to the bottom of the why. Well, now, I don't know if that's necessary. Oh, but it is, my good man, it is. With no knowledge of the why, you will not be able to solve the question of how. We must dig down deep and pierce the veil of perplexity. Perplexity? Perplexity, Virgil. Bewilderment. Mystification. Why, we're talking pure discombobulation, man. What's going on here, Virgil? This guy bothering you? Oh, he's starting to. Mr. Bland, this is- Chuck, please. Duh. Chuck, this is my partner, Abner Franks. Abner, Charles Bland. Ah, yes, you are the Franks to Virgil's beans. Virgil, I think this guy might be on the dope. You on the dope, Mr. Bland? <laughs> oh, how very witty, Mr. Franks. Very witty indeed. But please, call me Chuck. I'm afraid I insist. Well, what can we help you with today, Chuck? Now that, as I was saying to your colleague, is a tricky question. I mean, for starters, you are coming into this conversation with no information whatsoever. I'm not sure I can trust you to really dig in on a solution until you've been properly brought up to speed. Well, we haven't gotten anywhere, Chuck. There's nothing to catch Abner up on. Why, I'm shocked to hear you say that, Virgil. What about the text that brought me here in the first place? Text? Nobody said nothing about no text. Mr. Bland got a text from his wife. Come now, Virgil. Call me Chuck. No, I think I'll call you Mr. Bland from here on out. Fair enough. Well, tell me about this text. Well, yes, the text, which as I said, had been sent by my wife, requested, nay, demanded that I delay my homebound sojourn at once and procure for her the ovum of Gallus Gallus Domesticus. More than one, to be fair, 12 in total. She's rather partial to the Rhode Island Red, though I will certainly understand if you don't sort them by breed. Well, good gravy, Chuck. I'm afraid I'm going to have to apologize. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I didn't catch a lick of that. Come now, Abner. I was speaking perfect English. You sure about that? Well, of course I am. Sounded like a big old bunch of gobbledygook to me. Well, great Caesar's ghost, Abner. I'm not sure I could say it any more clearly than I already have. Try. Alrighty then. Let's see. Hmm. Oh, I know. <clears throat> I wish to buy a dozen eggs. Eggs? That's correct. Bring me a dozen of your best eggs, shopkeeper. Well, but this is a comic book store. 
From a secret location deep within the hills of eastern Kansas, one man armed only with a microphone, his voice, and an unnatural gift for hyperbole brings you the most important podcast in all of human history. It's time to escape from the mundane, ladies and gentlemen. This is Stephen or Else. Welcome to the very first episode of the all-new Stephen or Else, the podcast that simply doesn't know the definition of the word reboot, which, you know, might be part of the problem. I'm your host, my name is Stephen, and I salute you, each and every one, because you, my friend, are a lover of fine things, and your taste in podcasts only proves it. You've done the research, you've scoured the podcasting horizon in search of quality shows, you've read the reviews, you've weighed the pros and the cons, and in the end, you have chosen the one show that you know deep down in your heart of hearts will be the show that shines above the rest and will forever change the way you look at the world. But then you ignored all that and picked this show instead. Salute! Now, before we really dive into the meat of the show, some of you may be feeling a bit of an odd sensation as you're listening to this episode. I mean, you're there on your stationary bike or in your car or sitting at your desk or wrestling gators or doing whatever it is you do when you listen to these types of shows. And then suddenly you feel your skin begin to crawl as a sense of deja vu slowly washes over you. And you know what? That's okay. Because here's the thing, you are not going crazy. There's a reason for that deja vu-y tingle you're experiencing. And believe you me, it's a pretty darn good one. I I just don't want to get into all of it right now because, I mean, if you want me to be honest, it's all a bit dull. And being a bit dull is not at all what we're about here on Stephen or Else. Instead, I want you to relax, let go and give yourself over to what you are about to experience. Because you're in for something special here, folks. The good people at Stephen or Else have been working around the clock to create for you a little bit of magic here today. So let it in, people. Let it in. Just, you know, keep an eye on them gators. What is your favorite thing in the world? Comics. Yes. <laughs> Comics! No, 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 wait, tell me about comics. Comics! Back in 1991, seven of the biggest names in comics, straining under the yoke that was the work-for-hire policy at both Marvel and DC Comics, stood up before the publishing giants and said, Nope! You ain't getting none of this. Not anymore. Todd McFarlane, Eric Larson, Rob Liefeld, Jim Lee, Mark Silvestri, Jim Valentino, and Will Spertasio, collectively known as the Image 7, banded together and went out and formed themselves a comic book company, which they called Image Comics. By retaining full control of their creations, the Image 7 paved the way for a revolution all across the comic book industry, empowering creators and igniting a new era of comic book storytelling. 
It wasn't long before the Image 7 were ready to show the world what they could do. And so, in April of 1992, working with Malibu Comics to publish and distribute their titles under the Image brand, they began making comics, releasing eight new titles in those first 10 months alone. Youngblood, Spawn, Savage Dragon, Wildcats, Brigade, Shadowhawk, Cyberforce, and Supreme. As Image gained a foothold in the comic book industry, proving that they could sell some books, they attracted more and more talented creators who were drawn to the company's ethos of artistic independence. The publisher quickly expanded its lineup, introducing diverse titles across the genres, from superhero epics to sci-fi adventures and fantasy sagas. Image continued to evolve, diversifying its offerings to appeal to a broader readership. It embraced bold narratives, challenging themes, and inclusive representation, earning accolades for such titles as Saga, Monstrous, Paper Girls, and Deadly Class. Today, over 30 years later, Image continues to flourish, nurturing both established and emerging talent. The company remains committed to its core principles of creator-owned content, allowing artists and writers to shape their visions without compromise. And it all started back in April of 92, when Rob Liefeld's Youngblood hit the shelves. Not only would this title bear the honor of being the first issue ever to be published under the Image banner, it was also the only issue Image published in all of April and May of that year. That is until Spawn number one hit the shelves in June. That meant that Youngblood number one had to sit there on the shelves for two long months and carry that image flag, representing the coming wind that would forever change the world of comics. And it had to do it alone. As for me, well, I was there for all of it. I was just two years out of high school and I was working a second job at a comic book store. And like most of the comic reading world, I had loved the crap out of Rob Liefeld's X-Force when he was over there with Marvel. I mean, to many of us at the time, Liefeld's art was like a breath of fresh air. It was something we'd never really seen before, and it was filled to the brim with a kinetic sort of energy that made all those colorfully dressed characters practically jump off the pages. So yeah, for myself, I was riding that same ship that most everyone else was, and we were all chomping at the bit to get our hands on young blood. Now, this is going to sound more than a little cheesy and way too cliche, but I am speaking at you with zero sarcasm and very little hyperbole when I say here that it really was a magical time back then. I mean, if you weren't there, if you weren't around for it, then you just don't know. It's easy to be here in this now and look back at the books that Image put out in those first few years and laugh. It's easy to judge those of us who bought multiple copies of number one issues only to still have them taking up space in our collections today. But again, if you weren't there, then you simply do not know what it felt like. With that in mind, I recently revisited Youngblood number one. I hadn't read the book in maybe, I don't know, 25 years. And you know what I thought once I finished it? Well, I'm going to tell you. I mean, that's why we gathered y'all together. But before I get into what I thought, let me tell you what happened in the issue first. 
The Stephen or Else podcast will be back after these messages. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Oh me, oh my. Whatever am I gonna do now? Well, what's wrong there, friend? Well, it's my comic books. I have so many of them, and they aren't worth a dime. Well, that ain't nothing to fret over. One call to CVT will solve your problem. CVT? What is that? Not what, friend. Who? CVT is the Comics Value Team. The Comics Value Team? Well, that's right, friend. For just a small monthly fee, CVT will not only tell you the value of your comics, well, they're going to make your comics valuable. But how can they do that? The man at the comic book store said that my collection was worthless. Well, that's simple, friend. After cataloging your collection, CVT's value enhancement experts will seek out other copies of the same issues you own and eliminate them, making your collection all the more valuable. Eliminate them? But how? Space Age technology, friend, that's how. Why, with their patent-pending fleet of mobile incineration units, comic book stores will be lining up to buy your collection. Hey, now that's neat. Which sure is, friend. Thanks for the advice, stranger. I'm gonna call CVT right now. The Comics Value Team, turning your average comic book collection into a potential gold mine. The methods used by the Comics Value Team are not considered legal in all of the 50 United States, except for maybe some areas of Florida and Texas. And now back to Stephen or else. Youngblood number one hit the shelves on April 17th, 1992. It sold for $2.50 and it was created, plotted, penciled, and inked by Rob Liefeld. Hank Canals wrote the dialogue. Brian Murray did the color design and the color separations were by Digital Chameleon. This issue is actually what they call a flip book, meaning that there are two front covers, one on either side of the book. And I guess depending on which way you picked up the book, well, that would determine if you read the home team story first or the away team story first. Regardless, once you finished one story, you flipped the book over and read the other. For the show, I started with the home team as that's the cover you typically see online when you search for this issue. Seriously, go out, try it. Youngblood number one. If Bedrock and Shaft are on the cover, that's the home team, people. But before we get to the story, the inside cover lets you know who is on each team. Again, depending on which side you start with. In this case, the home team is made up of Bedrock, Combat, Chapel, Vogue, Die Hard, and Shaft. The issue opens in Washington, D.C. at 12.17 p.m. Jeff and Shelley, a young and attractive, super fit couple, are on their way to lunch when a purse snatcher strikes, taking the purse of a woman nearby. Jeff, every inch the ginger warrior, leaps into action. He catches up to the 'er ne'er-do-well in just a few steps and tackles him on an escalator before punching the criminal in the face. But it's all just a ruse. A man with a rifle, or possibly an old camcorder with a metal tube sticking out of it, is taking aim at Jeff from a secluded spot above. Turns out that Jeff is none other than Shaft, archer extraordinaire and leader of the premier team of superheroes, Youngblood. Shelly calls out, warning her handsome ginger beau to the danger from above, and Shaft spins, 
throwing an ink pen and taking out the would-be sniper, which really isn't much of a surprise. After all, that Shaft sure is a bad mother. Shut your mouth. Hey, I'm just talking about Shaft. Boo! That was a terrible joke. You should be ashamed. Shut up, Abner. Anyway, after Shaft kills the killer that was going to kill him, the press arrives on the scene and begins grilling our khaki-clad hero. But hey, don't worry. Shaft's beeper starts beeping, calling Shaft away to an emergency. We then meet the rest of the team as they, too, are beeped to come into the office for what I can only assume is an emergency. But the organization doesn't seem to be too organized based on the timestamps we're given throughout these pages. I'll explain. Bedrock is next. He's like a bald Hulk with granite-like skin, and he's home in Baltimore, Maryland, eating the lunch that his mom made for him. Bedrock's pager starts beeping at 12.32 p.m., 15 minutes after we meet Shaft. However, one might make the assumption that maybe it took 15 minutes from the time we meet Shaft and his girlfriend to the time that Shaft's pager starts beeping. I I can get behind that. And yet, the next member of the team who receives an alert is Die Hard. He's in Arlington, Virginia, deep underground in some sort of techno crypt, And he doesn't get the alert until 12.44 p.m., 12 minutes after Bedrock. Elsewhere in Arlington, we meet Chapel. He's having himself a little afternoon delight, or at least he's not cuddling with the lady he's with following a bit of afternoon delight when he's beeped at 1.11 p.m., 27 minutes after Die Hard. By the way, I'm guessing at this point that Die Hard is some sort of robot, but I may be wrong. Anyway. We shoot forward to 6.23 p.m. We're back in Washington, D.C., and we are introduced to Vogue. Well, technically. I mean, we see a woman in a costume running across the rooftops, but the only way we know her name is Rogue is due to that inside cover that I mentioned earlier on. That being said, her narration box tells us that it's been five hours since she was paged, which, if she's speaking or narrating literally, That means her page came in at 1.23 p.m. In other words, this world-class organization, which we can only guess is run by the American government, has taken over an hour to send five pages. I just hope that the emergency really isn't much of an emergency, especially since Vogue's narration continues to tell us that she basically ignored her page for, at the most, five hours just so Youngblood won't think that she's at their beck and call. I mean, if I were in charge, she'd be fired toot sweet for ignoring what appears to be an emergency call to action. She's not fired, however. Instead, when she arrives, Shaft tells her not to let it happen again. Whoa, settle down there, Shaft. Behavior like that will get you reported to HR for verbally abusing employees. Anyway, it's here at this moment. Now that Vogue has arrived, that Shaft turns to the unnamed generic white lady at the computer and asks her, what's the situation? I mean, she's in the room with them, right? The room in which they've all just been hanging out for what we have to assume at this point is at least five hours, hanging out and doing nothing while this woman sitting at the computer is there with them, knowing this whole time why they were called in, but she's just been keeping it to herself while the team plays Canasta or whatever. That's 
that's kind of odd, right? Or maybe she tried to brief Shaft the moment he arrived and he was like, no, 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 let's wait for the team. And then five hours later, okay, team's all here. What's the situation? What if at that point she had said, well, I mean, five hours ago when we paged you, a terrorist group had been spotted driving a semi-truck full of nuclear weapons toward New York City. Um, we called you in because there were a bunch of super-powered individuals with the group. You know, individuals too powerful for your average military unit to handle. And, you know, well, we figured that since you are the A number one superhero team working for the American government, a team of super-powered and highly skilled individuals brought together to handle situations just like this one, well, to be honest, we didn't send out a military response because, you know, again, uh, young blood. But, well, four hours ago, the truck made it into Manhattan and the nuclear payload exploded and uh, <clears throat> New York and the millions who live there are gone. So, yeah. But hey, now that Vogue's here, I guess... I don't know, maybe y'all can help with the cleanup or something. What's going on here makes no sense. Why would they do that? Why would the team just sit around and wait for Vogue for five hours? Nothing's moving forward. All protocol and procedure has ground to a halt. People, American citizens, could be dying. Highly populated cities could be at that very moment burning to the ground or could be nothing more than a crater full of radiation as nuclear fallout kills surrounding populations for miles around. We don't know. Shaft doesn't know. The team doesn't know because the entire system shuts down because one member of the team has yet to arrive. And I know I'm really hitting this point hard, but I can't help it. It's to me, it's just a huge fucking plot hole like the size a terrorist group could drive a semi truck full of explosives through. But no, it doesn't matter what's going on anywhere in the country or the world for that matter, because Vogue, who is apparently such an integral part of the team that they can't even bother to be briefed on the situation until she arrives, wanted to show them that she's not at their beck and call. I think were this situation in the real world, the woman would have at the very least briefed Shaft the moment he arrived and then let him disseminate the information to his team. You know, giving him a chance to gauge the importance of the problem they were called in to handle, giving him the power as the team leader to choose if they can wait for Vogue or if they need to just get moving and then he'll deal with Vogue later. <laughs> it all just seems a bit lackadaisical for what is supposed to be the A number one superhero team in this world. Regardless, now that Vogue has arrived, Five hours later, they all seem to be on high alert as the unnamed generic white lady at the computer tells them that one of their transport vehicles is under attack by Strongarm and Gage, two members of a group called the Four. The transport vehicle is carrying the other two members of the Four, Deadlock and Starbright, and Strongarm and Gage are there to bust them out. Luckily, it's taken them over five hours to free their team members. Otherwise, Shaft and his team would have arrived way too late. Yet, when the team does arrive, apart from Die Hard folding himself nearly in half in order to double punch Strongarm, there's no real action at all because 
the team's arrival signals the end of this story. So with the home team story told, we flip the book over to get to the second tale, which features the Youngblood away team. And again, the inside cover lets us know who is on the team. Brahma, Riptide, Photon, Sci-Fire, Sentinel, and Cougar. As this story opens, we learn, thanks to a very disjointed news story, that the terrorist group known as the Holy Unification, under the leadership of a man named Hassan Hussein, which, I'm sorry, sounds a bit too much like Saddam Hussein, which to me screams a lack of imagination. Regardless, the Holy Unification has been doing all kinds of bad in the Middle East for the past few months, and the president of America has decided to send in a special task force to do what needs to be done. That special task force is, of course, the Youngblood away team, who, along with a bunch of generic-looking soldiers, are airdropped into the middle of some sort of conflict out there in the Middle East, in the, in, in the desert. The team, led by Sentinel, well, they just start kicking butt. We learn quickly, however, that despite what the inside cover had said, Photon is not actually with this team, but some dude named Combat is. Photon, I failed to mention, was in the other story. He was back at headquarters when the team arrived, and he's probably an alien, considering the blue fire that is always coming out of the top of his head. He does nothing at all in this issue, but he's on the away team cover and on the inside cover, so I guess they had to put him in here somewhere. Combat is a giant, or not, depending on which panel you're looking at. And he carries a gun, so that makes him the gun guy. Cougar is the Wolverine of the group, and the two of them begin ripping into terrorists. Brahma is the strong guy, and Riptide, well, she pulls water from the air and does stuff with it. Sci-Fire just floats around as energy crackles around his head, and Sentinel flies all over the place and shouts orders when he's not firing energy blasts from his hands. This story is all action, and it comes to an abrupt end when Sci-Fire, who must be the dangerous, almost evil guy on the team, uses his Psy powers to make Hassan Hussein's head explode, which everyone else on the team finds both shocking and yet on brand at the same time. The Away Team tale ends up with the front page of the USA Today newspaper showing a headline claiming that Hussein, I mean Hussein, committed suicide, which means that Youngblood ain't afraid of a cover-up. And that's what happened in the issue, which, if I'm being perfectly honest, was not as good as I remember it being. Don't get me wrong. Everything I said about that time in 92 being magical and, and all that stuff, that's, that's all true. It's just that, I don't know, I guess 30 years can really change a person, and looking at this story now, it was just a bad issue. Now, I know that there are still a great big bunch of people out there that still love this book. And frankly, I'm not going to apologize for the fact that my thoughts on this book have changed over the last 30 years, because here's the thing. Art is subjective. We're all entitled to our opinions, and I am allowed to dislike this issue while others are allowed to like it. For me, there were just way too many problems with this book. I mean, once we get beyond the whole clusterfuck of how long it takes the 
home team to arrive at the home base and then still wait five hours for one of the other team members. All the while, there's some kind of emergency going on. Once you get beyond that, (laughs) it's just pretty bad. The art is a bit disjointed. It looks great in some panels and yet unbelievably wrong in others. And honestly, I think Liefeld made a huge mistake in the way he put this book together. Yes, Youngblood is a team book, and I get that it consists of a home team and an away team, but there were just too many brand new characters in this book. And to give us two short stories, one from each team, rather than using the issue to set things up a bit more, it just made me feel empty once I was done. The sheer amount of characters spread out around two short stories where not much really happened just made everyone in the book feel fairly generic. I would have much rather he focused on the home team first and given us a bit more from them before introducing us to the other group of characters later on in the series. Again, don't get me wrong. I know that it's the cool hip thing to bag on Liefeld's art these days, and that's not at all what I'm doing, not necessarily. I mean, despite the problems I had with the art in this book, I still like his stuff now almost as much as I did 30 years ago. See, here's the thing. When Liefeld is on, his art is, as I said earlier, fun and full of energy. I mean, I have no issues with the big pecs, the giant guns, the pouches all over the place, the unnatural body positions, and the huge curved slabs of metal or the enormous padded swaths of fabric he likes to put on most of his character's shoulders. The way his art tells a story, however, can sometimes be a bit rough. But here's the thing, because I was there when all of this was coming out and because I'm nearly as old as Liefeld and because I've seen him in various panels at various cons and have read slash watched slash listened to many interviews with the man over the years, I feel fairly confident in saying that Rob Liefeld loves, I mean, loves superhero comics. In fact, when I read books like Youngblood, I think about how much Liefeld loves comics, and I realize that when he made books like this back then, and the few books made by him recently, it's like he's a kid again playing with his action figures. He's having a ball just putting as much crazy shit on the page as he can, and I can't really blame him for that. Does that make this issue any better in my mind? No, not really. But I both respect and envy the guy because he's made a living over the last 30 years or so, and a good living at that, doing what he freaking loves to do. And for that reason alone, well, that and the 19-year-old in me that just couldn't get enough of everything he put out back then, I'm always going to give Rob Liefeld the benefit of the doubt and give any and everything he creates a try. I may not like everything, but on the other hand, I might find something that I love. So. Like him or not, the bottom line is that Rob Liefeld loves what he does, and I think that shows through in everything he creates. But Youngblood number one was bad. So very, very bad. Meanwhile, back at the Franks and Beans comic book store... So what you're telling me is that this is a comic book store. Yes. Yes. And not a grocery store. No. No. Well, with a name like Franks and Beans, you can certainly understand my confusion. Well, not really, but let's pretend like I do. 
Didn't all the comic books lining the walls and total lack of food clue you in at all? Oh, well, I guess... Plus, there's an egg store right down the street. An egg store? Ellen's eggs, two doors down. They got that giant egg up on the roof. How could you have missed that? Well, if you must know, I'm blind. Blind? Well, no, not really. I only said that to mask my embarrassment. Look, it's okay. Well, yeah, man. Mistakes happen. No, it's not okay. I can't believe I thought that this was a grocery store. Of course, now that you say it, there are comics all over the place, but I just thought it was some sort of artsy bodega or something. I am always doing things like this, leaping before I look, making assumptions. Why, it was the same with that letter carrier last year. I thought he was going for a gun. It was only after I shot him dead that I realized that he was just taking that month's edition of Dog Fancy magazine out of his bag. He was just delivering the mail, for cripe's sake. Why, if I hadn't been able to drag his lifeless body into my garage and stuff it into that chest freezer before anyone could see, I would have been caught for sure. Lady Luck was with me that day, I can tell you. And so, under the cover of night, as the neighbors slept, I buried his stinking corpse right there in the dirt floor of my unfinished basement. It had all gone perfectly to plan. The next morning, I had the concrete poured for the new basement right over the top of his unmarked grave. It was all rather exciting. Why, I'd never felt so alive in my entire life. In fact, oh, I'm sorry, what are you doing? Who, me? Yes, Abner, where are you going with that phone? What phone? The phone you have there in your hand. Oh, this phone. Well, I'm a... Well, he's calling the movie line. The movie line? Well, yeah, you know, that 1-800 number you call to find out what time movies start. Right, Abner? Well, yeah, that's right. I'm calling the movie line. I think you're calling the police. No, I ain't. I'm calling the movie line. And why would you be calling the movie line? Oh, uh, well, Virgil? Uh, he's, uh, he, he's calling the movie line because, well, because, uh... He's calling the movie line because we planned on going out to see a movie tonight after we closed the store, and uh, Abner just needed to see what time the movie started. Oh, yeah, that's right. And what movie are the two of you going out to see tonight after you close the store? Movie? You mean the title of the movie? Well, of course that's what I mean. I want to know what the two of you are going to see. Oh, okay. The... The title of the movie. Oh, uh... We was gonna go see, uh... Hmm. The title of the movie. Hmm. Virgil, what was the name of that movie? Uh, Tough Guy? Yeah, that's right, Tough Guy. We was gonna go see that new Tough Guy movie. Tough Guy? Yeah, you know, Tough Guy. Born with the strength of a thousand professional wrestlers. Faster than a hummingbird's wings. Voice like a choir of angels and destined to punch evil in its stupid face. Tough guy. He's only the greatest superhero of all time. You don't know who tough guy is? Well, of course I know who tough guy is. I just didn't know they were making a movie. He's tough. He's, He's a guy. guy. He's, He's tough, tough guy. guy. <laughs> yes, indeed. Who's directing, by the way? Steven Spielberg. Really? That's pretty cool. There you go, folks. The end of the show. You're probably going to hear this more and more as I put out episodes, but I'm regarding Stephen or else as the podcast in which I can do whatever I damn well please. Yeah, I'm probably always going to talk about a comic in each episode, but beyond that, there are no rules. I'm going to talk about what I want to talk about, when I want to talk about it, in whatever way I feel like talking about it, and I'll release the episodes 
whenever they're released. So yeah, uh, that's about the only promise I can make when it comes to what is the third version of this podcast. Now, next week, I will be back with more Franks and Beans or next month or in the next six. I don't know. I don't know when the next episode's coming out. I don't give a shit. That's not the point here. But when it does come back, it'll be back with more Franks and Beans. But I have no idea which comic I'm going to talk about in it in a blah, 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 episode number two, or what else may find its way into the show. Speaking of which, if you have a comic you want me to read and talk about here on the show, you know, a single issue from any era that's just jam-packed with all kinds of crazy shit or issues like Young Blood number one, which I think was meant to be taken seriously, but is chock full of all sorts of problems. Well, email me at stevenorelse at gmail.com and I'll take a look at it. I'm not going to promise I'll read it or even talk about it on the show, but I'll look at it. Until then, folks, I will leave you with this one thought. People are going to be what they're going to be, regardless of how much you disagree or how unnatural it is for you to see them doing it. Folks who choose to use roller skates have the freedom to make that choice for themselves. It may be stupid. It may not make sense to you, but you got to just let them do their thing. Be nice to each other. You've been listening to the Stephen or Else podcast. This episode was written, performed, produced, engineered, and edited by me, Stephen Orr. Questions, comments, complaints, and critiques can be directed to stephenorelse at gmail.com. Just keep in mind that I may read it out on a future episode, so if you don't want me to use your name, let me know. Find me online at Twitter, Spoutable, Instagram, and TikTok by searching for at Stephen or Else, and then join my newsletter, Stephen Says Stuff, at list.justanotherfanboy.com. This is a free Substack where I will send every podcast episode I host right to your inbox the morning they are released. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month over at the Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Stephen R. Orr. And in return, I'm going to do my very best to give you and your fellow patrons podcast episodes just like this one before anybody else. I also encourage you to rate this show wherever available and share this episode with a friend. All links will be in the show notes. Good job. Uh oh. You know who you are? Even Steven.